Well, we are returning to 1 Samuel after our, what was somewhat of an extended deviation. Several months ago, we actually read this text at the beginning of public worship, and we noted that people, not only in 1 Samuel, but really throughout much of the Old Testament, kind of keep dying when they mishandle the scriptures, or the ark, or have at least something very bad happen to them. And we asked why. Why is the reason, what is the reason why this happens to those who mistreat the ark? And our answer, briefly, was because the ark is part of a category in the Scripture that was known as holy things. And we briefly went back to Numbers 3 and saw that in the Old Covenant, there were a a, a slew of things that were given that title, holy things. They included such items as the tabernacle, the lampstand, the table of the bread of presence, and the altar, among others. And in order to understand the significance of that category known as holy things, we needed to sort of understand more broadly the concept of holy within Scripture. And so that led us to an exploration of the ideas that the Word of God frequently puts together in contrasting terms, that being holy and common. For example, God says you are to distinguish between the holy and the common several times. And we found that underlying the holy common distinction was this idea of the the two-kingdom structure of this age. And we've done a fair amount of work in putting all those pieces together But even though we've explored the broad notions of holy and common, we've not yet actually explored the specific phenomenon known as holy things. We've simply laid the groundwork for doing so. Now, having readied ourselves over the past several months, our goal is to develop something of an understanding of what holy things are. And we're going to allow this narrative here in 1 Samuel chapter 6 to serve as our guide and instructor. Now, here's our outline for today. I'm going to start by briefly defining holy things... And we're going to walk through this text, and we're going to allow it to fill out our understanding of that concept, and then we'll see how holy things inform our understanding of the present work of Christ and His application of His merits to Christians in the New Covenant, and then we'll make some applications for ourselves. So, let's begin then with a brief definition of holy things. This is a bit of a mouthful, so I'm going to say it twice. Holy things are objects or institutions that God has set apart as a means by which He will bring the realities of the present heavenly eschatological kingdom of glory into the current life and experience of man in the common realm. Let me say that one more time. Holy things are objects or institutions that God has set apart as a means by which He brings the realities of the present heavenly eschatological kingdom of glory into the current life and experience of man in the common realm. And we're going to flesh that out a little bit more as we go, but the basic idea is this. Holy things are considered holy, not because of something that is inherent in themselves, but because God has been pleased to use them as a means of bringing the heavenly holy order into close proximity to non-glorified men. Now, so far in 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, as we've gone through some of these chapters... We've come to a section that's often known as the Ark Narratives, chapters 3 to 6. I want to briefly recap what we've seen throughout these Ark Narratives, since it's been a few months since we've been in this book explicitly. In chapter 3, you remember Samuel received his commissioning as a prophet at the foot of the Ark, as that divine cloud, as it were, rested upon it, and we trust the angel of the Lord met him there and gave him that commissioning. Then in chapter 4, the Israelites turned the Ark into an idol, 
And they were defeated by God at the hands of the Philistines because the glory of the divine presence, the the cloud of heaven, had departed. It was no longer present with them, but they were ignorant of that. Then in chapter 5, we followed the ark into the land of Philistia, and we saw God waging war upon Dagon and the Philistine people. And we noted that the Philistines sort of came to take on the same characteristics as their god Dagon. They They had eyes but could not see, ears but could not hear, And we concluded that those who make idols become like them. Now, today's text picks up with the holy ark of God in the land still of the Philistines. We're going to follow it on its return journey home. And it's important to note at the outset that in this narrative, the ark is indeed front and center. There are going to be many things that change throughout the course of this narrative. The characters transition from the Philistines to animals to the Israelites, to foreigners within Israel. And the location of the story changes just as many times. But through all the peripheral changes, the one thing that the text keeps its gaze focused on is the ark. At every point, the text emphasizes the fact that the ark is holy and that God expects it to be treated as such. So then, to the exposition. I've broken this text up into two main headings with subheadings under each. The two main headings, which roughly correspond to half of the text on each of them, are these. First, we will look at holy things in the hands of pagans. Then second, holy things in the hands of Israel. First, holy things in the hands of pagans. This will cover verses 1 to 12. Under this section, we're going to have two sub-points. The first will be holy things discerned in verses 1 to 6. Let's take a look at verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Seven months. Notice the narrator frames the story right away by calling the ark to our attention and noting that it was in the land of the Philistines for quite a long time. Seven months is a long period to endure all of the sufferings that have been described in chapter 5. And in light of the the distress God is inflicting through the ark, notice the Philistine response in verse 2. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. Now notice two things about their question. First, they still have pagan conceptions of God. Where do we see that? Well, they mention there the idea of God's place. Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. That may not seem like much on the surface. But it's actually an intentional quotation of the previous chapter, chapter 5 and verse 3. Where after Dagon fell down, we read that the Philistines came in and put him back up in his place. The Philistines have place gods. That is, gods that can be confined to a specific locale and location. And so here, they refer to the idea that they're going to take Yahweh and send him back to his place. He's not God over where they are. He's God over there. We're going to send him back to his place. So they still don't get it. That's the first observation. Second, notice who they call for. The diviners and the priests. Now, these are men who can allegedly reveal the mind of God. And what's interesting is that these are the very men that the Israelites were forbidden to consult with when God was sending them into the land in Deuteronomy 18. He said the the, the Canaanites, they access the diviners and the soothsayers. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Now, the ironic thing here is that these diviners actually get more right in the narrative than almost anybody else. They don't get everything right, but they get some things right. Take note of their advice, because it's here in their advice that the author of this narrative begins to to sort of clue us in that he's constructed and written this narrative in order to teach us something about holy things. 
Look at verse 3. If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return to Him a guilt offering. Notice they don't say return to Him a sin offering or a burnt offering or a peace offering. They specifically say return to Him a guilt offering. Now, why would they choose that language? What are guilt offerings? Well, in the Scripture, guilt offerings are first introduced to us by that title in Leviticus chapter 5 which tells us that guilt offerings were to be offered when someone had committed an offense in regard to the holy things of the Lord. Those would be the things of the tabernacle from Numbers 3. Let me read you a section there. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish from the flock for a guilt offering. So when an offense is made against holy things, a guilt offering is the required recompense. That's what God had said. And it was the Levitical priests who were, of course, to oversee and administer these guilt offerings. But what's amazing in our text is that it's not the Levitical priests who are advising the Philistines to offer a guilt offering. It is the pagan diviners. And yet they use the same word, the same Hebrew word that God had given in Leviticus 5 for a guilt offering to tell the Philistines what they should do. In other words, they have discerned that the ark is a holy thing. It was among the holy things of Yahweh. And that they have sinned in respect to it. Now, how would they possibly know that? They weren't there when God gave Leviticus chapter 5 out of the tent of meeting. Well, it's probably the case, this is, we have to speculate here, but it's probably the case that they had gained some knowledge from their interactions with the Israelites of the cultic worship that Yahweh had prescribed. And they've learned that Israelites have to offer guilt offerings when they offend anything that's going on at that tabernacle. However, even though they, they know the terminology, we see that their knowledge is clearly limited in some way. The people ask them in verse 4, what is the guilt offering that we should return to him? Now, if they were knowledgeable and wanting to sincerely honor Yahweh, the answer would have been, you return to him an unblemished ram, plus one-fifth compensation toward the tabernacle. But that's not what they say. Instead, they turn to their pagan instincts to fill in the gaps of their knowledge. In verses 4 and 5, we read what they prescribe as a guilt offering. Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on you and all of your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. There is a lot of speculation among the commentators about the significance of the tumors and the mice. Uh, we know from the, from the previous chapter that God had caused some, something of tumors in the form of plague to come upon them. And it's potentially the case that they knew and there was an association between the plague and mice. The Philistines, uh, Ashdod in particular, was a port city, so they would always have ships coming in. And you may know that in the Middle Ages it was the, the, the rats on, on ships that brought the plague into Europe. And so, though they may not understand the biology of it, they may have had some connection in their mind between mice and the plague. And so they seem to combine these things together and come up with a guilt offering to the Lord. But then note their reasoning for giving this guilt offering. In their words, this is going to be a way to give glory to the God of Israel. Paul preached on that phrase back in Revelation chapter 14, to give glory to the God of Israel is to confess and recognize that He is just and right in the judgments that He brings upon you. So these mice and these tumors serve as something of a confession. 
But if we pay attention, we see it's probably not a sincere, fully sincere confession. In the second half of verses five, or verse 5 and in verse 6, see what they say. Perhaps God, Yahweh, will lighten His hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts like the Egyptians and Pharaoh? And He dealt severely with them. In other words, they seem to be something of pragmatists here. We are suffering because of the ark. We've been unable to stop it by other means. Our options are to keep rebelling and try to resolve this thing on our own. Or we can suck it up, admit defeat, and send this holy ark back with a guilt offering. At least if we do that, maybe the suffering might stop. So they may be merely pragmatists and not fully repentant for their profanation of Yahweh. But the point of this initial uh, episode in the narrative is to teach us this, that even pagans can rightly discern that this ark belongs to the holy things of Yahweh, and that to profane it or to fail to treat it with the reverence that is due to it makes one liable to wrath and having to render compensation to Yahweh in the form of a guilt offering. So the holiness of the ark, the holy status of the ark, is discerned by these pagans. That's the first subpoint under the holy in the hands of pagans. Next, we come to the second subpoint: holy things protected. This is in verses 7 to 12. This section is really quite famous. Pretty much everybody knows it. Probably you remember it from your childhood. The Philistines want to see if God really will protect this ark of His and return it to Israel. And so they come up with a strategy. They get two cows and they're going to strap a cart to them. And on the cart, they're going to place the ark and a second box that they've made into which they're going to put their guilt offering of the golden mice and the tumors. And then they take the calves of the cows and they lock them up, presumably in a barn somewhere back in their land in Philistia. And the idea is, of course, that if the cows act according to their nature, they're going to hear the cries of their young, and they're going to turn around, and they're going to go back to their young, into Philistia. They're not going to go up to the land of Israel. And so, therefore, if Yahweh is desiring to have His ark back, He's going to have to exert some more of that extraordinary power that He'd already showed them back in chapter 5. And He's going to have to cause these cows to act contrary to their nature and to bring the ark back into his land, the land of Israel. And so they set up this scheme, and the cows do indeed head back toward the land of Israel. Now most commentators and people who I've heard preach this passage throughout the years tend to camp out right here in this section, and I understand why. There is much that can be mined here about God, about His uh, sovereignty over all things, and potentially exploring some of the interesting questions about why does God seemingly uh, condescend to allow these pagans to quote-unquote put Him to the test and uh, bring the ark back and, and play along, for lack of a better term. But as useful as those discussions can be, I'm trying to keep a consistent theme here. And so for now, let us simply note that God's actions help to further solidify the theme of this passage, which is setting the ark forth as something sacred. God makes the beasts bow to His will and return the ark to Him. As it says in verse 12, "...the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway." lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right or the left. In other words, those cows went exactly where God wanted them to go. God does not treat other boxes in Israel or in Philistia in this way, but He does it for the ark because this is the one that He has set apart as holy. So that's the first main point in this section, holy in the hands of the pagans. It shows us, it sets the stage and shows us that we are dealing with in the ark a holy thing. Now we come to the second main point, the holy, the holy things in the hands of Israel. 
First, under this section, we will look at the profanation of holy things in verses 13 to 19. And we read here that when the ark returns to Israel, it comes to a town called Beth Shemesh. Let me read, starting in verse, halfway through verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and it stopped there. Now on the surface, the name of this town may not seem overly relevant. But it's actually very important. And it helps to continue to center the framework of this narrative around the concept of holy things. How so? What is Beth Shemesh? Well, it's mentioned a couple of times in the Old Testament. It's mentioned first in the book of Joshua, and there twice. In Joshua 15, we are told that it's one of the cities that formed the boundary of the tribe of Judah. Okay? Then in Joshua 21, we get a little bit more info. In that chapter, Joshua is allotting cities to the Levites. Remember, they didn't get their own separate tribe. They got sort of cities within each of the tribes. So Joshua is allotting cities for the Levites to dwell in. And within, the, within the, the clan of the Levites, the tribe of the Levites, there are three subgroups, the Gershomites, the Merarites, and the Kohathites. And Joshua gives the city of Beth Shemesh to the Kohathites. It's part of their allotment. Now, why is that significant? Well, remember that in Numbers 4, God designates the Kohathites as the subgroup of the Levites who has a specific duty, and that is that they have charge over the holy things that he has established. He says there in Numbers 4, This is the service of the sons of, that the sons of Kohath shall perform to me in the tent of meeting. They will serve in the holy things. And then he goes on to list all of the uh, holy things and to describe how the Kohathites have to carefully and meticulously treat these items. So in other words, Kohathites are experts in holy things. That's their job. And in this narrative, providence of all providences, the ark winds up the chief of all holy things winds up in a city that is filled with people who are trained in holy things. So on the surface, this whole episode couldn't be going any better. The ark's come back and it's come to the exact right place. If the ark had come into a city filled with Israelites not designated or trained in dealing with holy things, then they might profane the ark and bring even greater judgment upon Israel. But the ark has come exactly where it needs to because surely these men... If anybody in Israel is going to show reverence to the ark, it's going to be these men. So let's see how they do. In verses 13 and 14, we read this. When they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. They split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And then in verse 15. And the men of Bishemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. Now at first glance in those verses, it actually seems like it's going quite well. It seems like they're rejoicing and celebrating and overjoyed in the Lord that He has returned the ark. And rather than even keeping the cows for themselves and taking the meat, they actually go so far as to offer them to Yahweh. They don't take it for themselves. But that's just on the surface. There are a couple of problems here. First, Israel has sinned with respect to holy things. That's why the ark got banished into the land of Philistia in the first place. The Israelites had sinned. And when a sin is committed in the holy things, we've already seen from Leviticus 5 that God said that a guilt offering had to be given to atone for that sin. That meant a ram had to be given. But the men of Beth Shemesh disregard this, and instead of offering a guilt offering with a ram, they decide to offer cows and offer a burnt offering instead of a guilt offering. And that shows that they have not 
carefully thought through their sin and not even taken the basic time necessary to consider what God would have them to do in light of this. A careful examination of our sin and of true repentance always brings with it regard for how God has said that we should handle our sin. It's not what we want to do. But they have decided which sacrifice that they should offer in response to God. That's the first problem. The second problem is the location in which this sacrifice is offered. They do it right there in the fields of Beth Shemesh. You may recall, and I think uh, Brian may have even mentioned this in his reading last week, that in Deuteronomy 12, God had said quite clearly to Israel that they may not offer sacrifices wherever they would like to. Let me read you from there. But when you go over to the land of the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that Yahweh will choose in your tribes. There you shall take your burnt offerings." See, God had said, you're going to offer them where I say to do it, where I put my name. Not only do they offer the wrong sacrifice in this episode, they don't even take it to the place where God has promised He will receive it, which would be where the tabernacle is, at Shiloh at this point in history. And the reason for that is that they're not actually concerned about the glory of God and what they've done to Him. They're not actually concerned about it at all. They're just thrilled that it looks like their carnal enemies have been defeated. The Philistines come back with their tail tucked between their legs, and they're bringing the ark back. And they take joy in that. But if they were really rejoicing in Yahweh's glory and having penitence, they would have followed His commands. Now that's the first couple of ways that they profane the holy thing of the Lord. But they're actually just getting started. Let's take a look again at verse 15. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, and they set them on a great stone. Now once again, on the surface, it looks like they've obeyed. It even says in the text, the Levites took it down. And that was the job of the Levites. Nobody else besides the Levites was to maneuver this ark. (coughs) But carrying or maneuvering the ark was not just something that the Levites were supposed to do. They had to do it in a certain way. They had to do it with poles. Their hands were never to make contact with the ark. Now, we don't have any mention of the poles here. We don't know infallibly that they weren't there. But the fact that the author fails to mention it in light of all of their other sins is probably a hint that they had no concern with the manner of transporting the ark and that they grabbed it down just like they did the other box and they put it on this stone. And if any man is inclined to think that it's not a big deal to use one's hands in the transportation of the ark rather than how God had said, they need only look at Uzzah. As he will find out in 2 Samuel, the next book of the Bible, God takes it quite seriously when the things that he has prescribed are not carried out by the Israelites. So there's a further lack of reverence for holy things here. And it's actually fitting that after all this, the text mentions in verse 16 uh, the Philistines and that they've been watching all of this. We read there, and when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Now think of the subtle jab that the author of the narrative is taking at the Israelites here. The Philistines have also profaned the ark, but they actually managed to get a couple of things right. They knew that it had to be sent back to the tent in Israel, and that's why they did that. And they confessed, at least formally, that they needed to give glory to the God of Israel. Some kind of confession and contrition was necessary. And they even got the type of sacrifice right that they needed to bring. They said guilt offering. 
Now, they didn't necessarily know it was supposed to be a ram, so they offered the wrong thing, but at least they got the type of sacrifice correct. It doesn't excuse their sin, but they're at least formally on the outside doing some of the things externally right. The Israelites, by contrast, have gotten almost nothing right in this episode. Wrong sacrifice, wrong method of transport, wrong location, and wrong attitude. No humility, no repentance is seen here. They are not giving glory to the God of Israel and confessing that he was just in what he had done by slaughtering many of them at the hands of the Philistines and sending away excuse me, the ark. And so what we have is the Philistines watch all of this unfold. The Philistines are watching Israel further profane the ark of God. Yahweh's name is being profaned among the nations in this episode. Things have not improved within Israel since the days of the book of Judges. There is no reverence for holy things here or for the Holy One who establishes them. Now I'm going to skip verses 17 to 18. Uh, There we get a a, a further description of the contents of the Philistine box. Uh, Again, the golden mice and the tumors. We've already seen those. Let's jump down to verse 19 where sort of the, the climax of this irreverent jamboree comes to a head and things actually somehow get even worse. We read in verse 19, He struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Now, we don't get a lot of description about what led up to this specifically. Now, in trying to reconstruct this, I imagine that it might have gone something like this. In the midst of the party and the excitement, some of the people probably started talking amongst themselves and saying, Did you see what was in the box that those Philistines sent back? Did you see all that gold in there? That's really valuable. I wonder what's in that box overlaid with gold over there. Plus, it's a forbidden and mysterious ark that no common Israelite has ever been allowed to look inside. And so rather than reverencing the box of God, they allow their carnal appetites to take over. And what do they do? They go over and they not only touch, but they remove the lid from the ark and they begin to peer inside. And we have to wonder, did they even have time to register the contents of the box before they were struck dead. You remember what was inside of it? The tablets of stone and and Aaron's uh, staff that had budded and the manna that fell from heaven. Did they even have a chance to register what was in the box before God immediately struck them dead for their irreverence? We don't know the answer to that. But God had clearly said in Numbers chapter 4 about the Kohathites, "...let not the clan of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites." But deal thusly with them, that they may live and not die when they come near to the holy things. They shall not go in and look upon the holy things for even a moment, lest they die. You may recall the holy things were to be covered with goat skin and with a a blue cloth as it was being transported so that the people's gaze could not land upon those most holy things. And that was meant to paint a picture for Israel of how God Himself is separate and wraps Himself in smoke and thick darkness that sinful men may not approach unto Him. God had set all of this down to teach them about the fearfulness of approaching something as transcendent and as holy and as exalted as His own impeccable being. And yet they didn't have regard for any of it. They didn't even make the first attempt to obey the smallest of the prescriptions that God had laid down for how they were to approach the ark. And so for their utter contempt for holy things, and therefore ultimately the holy one, they are wiped away. That's the first sub-point under the second section, the profanation of the holy things. 
Next, we will see separation from the holy things. In verse 20 through chapter, the end of chapter 7, verse 2. Now after this catastrophe of God striking them down, you would think that they might actually start to get their act together. But rather than repenting and transporting the ark properly on poles to the tabernacle where it belongs, then offering guilt offerings to the Lord, which God had prescribed, rather than doing that, they call somebody else in to come and take care of it. And we read, starting in verse 20, The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Now this is truly a sad moment in the history of Israel. Because the whole point of God bringing this people out, establishing them in the land, and putting His presence there among them was to establish a joyous bond of communion between Himself and His people. It was supposed to be a, a, rejo- a thing that would bring happiness and peace and joy to both God and His people. And yet, all they want in this moment is to be away from Him. They just want Him gone. The covenant God, who is a loving, gracious God, they want nothing to do with Him. They want Him out of their sight. This is not repentance. This is cowardice on their part. They simply want to be away from God like all unregenerate men do. When the holiness of God and His demands come too close, unregenerate men are fine to go walk on their own way as long as they think God is not near to them and bringing demands upon them. And so the men of Kiriath-Jerim do come and they take it. And once again... In this little section, the concept of holy things is actually quite clearly reinforced in these last few verses. And it happens once again through the mention of the city. Kiriath-Jerim. Kiriath-Jerim was a city that was given to a group called the Gibeonites in the days of Joshua. You might remember that uh, the Gibeonites were inhabitants of the land of Canaan who deceived Israel when Israel was supposed to come in and wipe all the Canaanites out. And they tricked Israel and Joshua into making a covenant with them that Israel would not harm them, but would allow them to dwell in the land with Israel. And so they received actually some land within Israel. But more than that, they were made tabernacle servants by Joshua, were these Gibeonites. In Joshua chapter 9 and verse 27, we read, Joshua made the Gibeonites in that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and servants of the altar of Yahweh to this day in the place that he should choose. That would be the tabernacle. These people were servants that were near unto and facilitating the Levites in their duties with holy things. They were tabernacle slaves. They were to assist the Levites. And so the Levites of Beth Shemesh, rather than directly dealing with God and with their sin, call non-Israelite tabernacle servants to come and get this thing. Now this is not the responsibility of the men of Kiriath-Jerim. And so they are being put in something of a tough situation. But notice the contrast in how they treat the ark with how the men of Beth Shemesh treated the ark. The ark needs to go back to the tabernacle. But the Gibeonites don't presume themselves to be able to do that. They don't have the authorization from God to enter into the tabernacle and to put it back in its place. But they have it because the Levites have forced them to. So notice their actions. Notice what they do, starting in chapter 7 and verse 1. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years. 
They take it to the house of a man named Abinadab and his son, Eleazar. Now again, on the surface, that doesn't seem like it would tell you much, but it actually does. Because when you look up the names Abinadab and Eleazar in the book of Chronicles, you see quite clearly that these are Levitical names, common Levitical names. Specifically, Nadab and Eleazar are among the most common Levitical names. And they take it to a man named Abinadab. Abinadab. He's a Levite. And so they take this thing back to their city, which is not a Levite city. But what they do is they seek out the nearest Levite within their city, and they make sure that he has charge of the ark. Why would they do that? Because that's what God's law required. Levites were to have charge of the ark. They knew that it was not within their prerogative to do so. So they don't presume to hold a feast and start looking inside of it and mistreating it or trying to use it for selfish ends. They seek out the best mechanism available to them to be faithful to Yahweh, and they get this thing in the house of a Levite. These non-Israelites are striving to be more faithful than the Kohathites themselves in handling holy things. And it is a shame upon the cowardly men of Beth Shemesh. Now, that takes us briefly, very briefly, through the text. Now I want to do a little bit more of an explanation, exploration of the idea of holy things. Now I hope that just from what we've gone through, you can see that there are very explicit and implicit clues all throughout the narrative that the idea of holy things is front and center here. And that the whole point of this text was to take one of the holy things and show us how God views it when it is treated with contempt. The text shows us that God hates it when holy things are profane. But to do full justice to this text, we need to know why. Why does God hate it so much when holy things are profaned? And to do that, we're going to need to use the rest of Scripture to fill this idea out just a little bit more. I want to begin this part by restating our definition of holy things. Let's get that back in our minds, and we're going to go through and illustrate a couple of things. Once again, holy things are objects or institutions that God has set apart as a means by which He will bring the realities of the present heavenly eschatological kingdom of glory into the current life and experience of man in the common realm. Now, to illustrate that, I want to look at sort of a parallel that exists in our text in chapter 19 to one of the first post-fall objects that God designates as a holy thing. In verse 19 of our text today, it said that He struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark. They sort of, as it were, broke through and removed the lid and gazed onto the ark. Now, a good Israelite who's reading this text is going to be reminded immediately of Exodus chapter 19. In that chapter, we have one of the earliest incidences of God taking something in the created order and designating it as a holy thing. And the object he chooses in that narrative is a mountain, Mount Sinai. I want you to listen to some of the parallels between what God says about Mount Sinai and what he says about the holy things of the tabernacle Later on, let me read you some verses from Exodus 19. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. 
And Yahweh called Moses from the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to Yahweh to look, and many of them perish. Now from that text, notice three things about Sinai that God says. First, the people and priests must wash and cleanse themselves before they approach unto it. Second, they must not touch it lest they die. Thirdly, they must not break through and look or gaze upon it lest they die. Now what else are all of those things true of in the Old Testament? Holy things. No one in Israel could approach the tabernacle, the holy things of the tabernacle, without washing. They were not to touch them unless authorized in very specific ways for very specific people. And they were not to look upon them. That's why they had to be covered constantly before they could be transported. And so all the things that were true of the holy things in the tabernacle are first spoken of Mount Sinai. But if that weren't enough to show that Sinai is sort of the archetypal holy thing, the text in Exodus 19 makes it quite explicit in verse 23. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it as holy. See, God said it very clearly. The mountain was holy. Now, all of that might establish that Sinai is holy. But what was it that made it holy? It can't be inherently so. There can't be anything about that, that conglomeration of dirt and rocks and, and that was made up into a mountain that makes it inherently holy. Five days before this episode in Exodus 19, anybody could have come up from any country and any heaven, uh, land under the sun and touched the mountain, and they would have been just fine. So then what changes? Well, the text tells us quite clearly. It was the Lord who descended on the mountain in fire and a thick cloud and thunder. Now, once again, what is this thick cloud? It's the same one we talked about in 1 Samuel 3 and 4. It is the created, visible manifestation of heaven, of God's heavenly temple. The prophets, as we said, they go into it, and what do they see? They see God on His throne and the house filled with glory. That's when they go into the cloud, and it's accompanied by the cherubim. And that's exactly what happens with Moses on Mount Sinai. He goes up into it. It says he enters the cloud. And what does he see? He sees God seated on his throne, his feet like sapphire. And he even eats and drinks in the heavenly dwelling of God Almighty. Now notice what's happening in the big picture of Scripture here. In the beginning, as we've said, all was holy in Adam's kingdom. There was, as Paul has alluded to in Revelation, that vertical axis that existed between heaven and earth, between God and man. It connected man to that heavenly eschatological reality that God inhabited. But then, of course, after the fall, that vertical axis is severed, and God introduces into the below realm, if we want to use that terminology, the common kingdom. But because God is working out redemption, He will frequently take those heavenly eschatological realities where He Himself dwells, and He will, as it were, bring them down into the midst of the common realm and draw near to the men who inhabit it. In other words, the substance of the holy kingdom breaks through throughout the Scriptures into the common realm. And the created means by which God brings that heavenly reality down into the common sphere, the means He uses are the holy things in Scripture. Why was the mountain a holy thing? 
Because through it, God brought the heavenly state down into the common realm and Moses was able to experience and draw near to it, even though he himself was not glorified. And so in that moment, the mountain was not like anything else around it. It wasn't like any other mountain. Not because its essence had changed. It was still a mountain composed of earthly dirt. But because through the mountain, the substance of eternity was brought into the realm destined to pass away. And this holy Mount Sinai episode then becomes the basis upon which the other holy things of the Old Testament are given to the people of Israel. Because once Moses is on the mountain and he sees these heavenly realities, God then tells him to do what? Go down from there and build all of these things that I say according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. And that's what the next four chapters of Exodus are about. As soon as Moses gets off the mountain, it goes into a description of what? The tabernacle, the lampstand, the altar, the table of the bread of presence, and the ark. All of the things that God had told Moses to come down and give and make for the people. And it is then those holy things that Moses makes that become the means in the Old Testament through which God draws near and brings that same heavenly eschatological reality that Moses experienced near to the people of Israel. And we see God doing just that. Because as soon as the holy things have been constructed in the tabernacle, what does God do? He takes that same heavenly cloud... He brings it down into the tabernacle, and we read that it filled the entire tabernacle. It overshadowed all of the holy things. And so as the people of Israel would draw near to the tabernacle, they were drawing near to the substance of the heavenly kingdom through the holy things. (coughs) Now, why was it so wicked that the people in today's text, in 1 Samuel, broke through and gazed into the ark? It's because the ark was God's chosen medium of bringing the eternal holy kingdom near to them. Remember, he would descend in that same cloud and he would sit upon the ark. He was enthroned upon the ark with heavenly glory. That's what made the ark a holy thing. And in treating the ark with contempt and a lack of reverence, these common kingdom dwellers were showing no awe or respect for the nature of the holy kingdom or the Holy One from that kingdom who had graciously drawn near to them through that object, through that thing. They didn't reverence the thing, and therefore they were not reverencing God. They were that close, as it were, to the eternal temple of God. And yet they treat the means by which the heavenly reality of God's existence is brought near to them, the ark, as no different than the common box that the Philistines had also included on the ark. You notice what they did. They go up to both of them and they remove the lids and they look inside. They treat both the holy ark and the common box in the exact same manner. There's no discernment of the holy and the common happening in this text. No discernment that the reason the ark was to be revered was because through it God was bringing heavenly, holy, glory, realities near. In other words, He was bringing Himself near to them, and they didn't reverence it. Now, that idea of of the substance of the holy kingdom being brought near to men in the common realm through holy things was very essential to the whole old covenant economy, right? Most of the the worship all revolved around the tabernacle and, and all of the holy things there. But do holy things still have application outside of the nation of Israel 
today. Are they merely a relic of the Old Covenant? We don't have a lampstand. We don't have an altar. We don't have that ark anymore that Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple. So do the holy things still have relevance? And the answer is that, of course, they do. Because God's church has not yet reached consummate glory. And therefore, God is still bringing the realities of the heavenly glory down to us that we may participate in and experience them in this age. The holy still breaks forth into the midst of the common. Now, what are new covenant holy things? What are the ways whereby God brings the realities of the age to come to His people? Well, there are several, and we're not going to this could be a whole series of sermons, so I'm going to stay pretty high level here just to, give, just to get us the idea. There are several, and I'm just going to pick a couple. Preeminent among the holy things is actually the Word of God itself. God's Word is holy. Because one of the primary functions that it plays is it brings a revelation of the substance and realities of the eternal kingdom directly to men. It brings it straight to the souls of men. It is a revelation of God. And God Himself is the substance of eternity. And that's why our doctrine of Christ as prophet is so important. And this goes back to 1 Samuel 3. Because who is Christ as prophet? He is the one that is sent from that realm, from that holy kingdom. And through the words that He speaks, He brings the truths of that realm to bear upon us who dwell in the common kingdom. And that's why Christ in His ministry, commissioned the apostles to do all kinds of things like preach and heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Because the revelation of that holy realm, wherein there is no sickness or death, and the power that accompanies it, comes to the people through the preached Word and through the power that is manifested in the abilities of Christ. When the sick were healed, they were not any physically closer to heaven after their interaction with the Word of God. But the Word of God brought something of that heavenly realm near to them as they suffered under the curses of the common realm. So the Word of God is preeminent among the holy things, and therefore it is the preeminent means of grace. Second, as far as holy things of the new covenant, sacraments. Sacraments, as has been said many times, are but the Word of God in a visible and tangible mode. But it's just because they bring the Word of God to us that they are properly termed holy things. Like Mount Sinai, they are things that Christ has set apart, whereby He promises to bring the substance of eschatological life to His people in an extraordinary way. We are really connected to the heavenly land when we draw near to the sacraments. Because by faith, through those means, we uniquely interact with and experience the heavenly Christ. The bread and the wine and the waters of baptism are holy things. They're not common. Again, not intrinsically. We're not Romanists. Their substance does not change into something outside of this world. But it is, they are holy because God has been pleased to use them as a means of bringing His Word and the eternal realities that are uh, attached to it into our souls. And the New Testament bears this out quite clearly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For anyone who eats or drinks, this is the Lord's Supper, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You ever thought about that? People were approaching 
the holy things of the new covenant, back in the days, first days of the church, the bread and the wine, approaching under the sacrament, and they were dying. Now where else have we seen in Scripture people being struck with plague and death because of irreverence? The holy things of the old covenant. Now this whole being struck to, to death in this life uh, through profaning the sacraments doesn't necessarily happen today for the same reason that the charismatic gifts have ceased. It was a manifestation at the establishment of the church vindicating the word of the apostles and the word of the Lord. But even though God doesn't necessarily act in that way to strike dead everyone in the assembly who profanes the Lord's Supper each Sunday, that does not mean that the severity of profaning holy things has been lessened in the least. When you come to the Lord's table or to baptism or really to any of the things in the public assembly on the Lord's day where the Word of God forms the substance of everything we do, you are approaching to the realities of the age to come. You are drawing near to the substance of heaven because God has promised to bring it especially near to you through those means. That's why the author of the book of Hebrews can say very clearly that people who were in the midst of the assembly in his day had tasted of the powers of the age to come. Why? Because they were really there. They had actually come and been brought into the assembly. Just like in the Old Testament. But brethren, and this is where our understanding of, of Christ is so important, I would be remiss if I let you walk out of here thinking that the, uh, the holy things that you draw near to each week bring to you a reality that is no different than the Old Testament saints did when they drew near to the tabernacle. Now, the substance is going to be the same because God never changes. But there's this wonderful doctrine in Scripture. And I, I, this would, again, deserve a whole sermon by itself, but I'm just going to mention it briefly. There's a wonderful doctrine in Scripture about the advancement of the state of heaven through history. Holy things bring heavenly glory near to man. That's what we've said. But the form of that heavenly glory that men encounter is not the same throughout history. And the reason for that is that heaven itself actually undergoes change and development in its form and in its glory. Now that may sound strange. We're probably used to thinking of heaven as a constant thing. Whenever someone mentions heaven, whether they're talking about it in the Old Testament, right now, or they're speaking of you know, eternity, you probably get the same general picture in your mind, no matter which time period we're referring to. But that's actually not the case. And you can really see that quite clearly by just realizing that heaven in its final form will be a union of what we now call heaven with earth. They're going to be joined together. So heaven itself will be of a different uh, mode, for lack of a better term. It's going to undergo development, in a sense. Now, that progression, that progression is actually seen all throughout Scripture. In the beginning, God created heaven. And He filled it with the glorious light of the Spirit of God. And it was the created glory of God as God that filled that first temple and that gave it its light. But then what does God do? He descends and He creates and He exercises power. And the sons of God, as Job tells us, sing for joy as He displays His might in creation. And afterward, He ascends back into heaven and He is now enthroned as the royal God of Sabbath rest, having magnified His glory through everything that He has created. And in that moment, heaven was filled not with the light of the glory of God generally, but with the glory of the enthroned Creator and Sabbath Lord who had magnified His glory throughout creation. And it is heaven in that form, defined by the enthroned, sabbatized Creator that the Old Testament saints drew near to. 
Heaven, as we've said, travels around in this cloud. And when, when Isaiah and Ezekiel see it, and, and to some extent Daniel, they, they look in and what they see is heaven in this stage of development with a majestic throne and filled with light and with cherubim. But they can't really make out the one who is seated on it concretely, that throne. But that form of heaven does not last. Because in his incarnate state, Jesus states quite clearly to the disciples that he is going to prepare a place for them. He's going to advance the form and the state of heaven. When he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, what's he talking about? He's talking about heaven. He's going there. What does it mean he's going to prepare it? If heaven is going to exist in the same form, what is he going to do to it to give meaning to the words, I'm going to prepare it? Well, he's speaking, of course, of his ascension. Christ ascends into the heavens. And as we've said, He is endowed with the Spirit of glory. And as He enters through those gates and takes His seat at the right hand of the Father, in that moment, the heavenly temple is not filled with the glory of God generally or just the glory of the Sabbath King in the first creation, but heaven is filled with the glory of God reflecting and refracting from an exalted and victorious man. All the glory of heaven is channeled and radiates out from a man. Heaven's glory is now Christocentric. It is a reflection of the beauty and the majesty of the exalted Christ. Heaven has gone from God's land generally to Emmanuel's land specifically. And when the saints of God get to heaven, they don't see the bright glory of God in a general form. They see it embodied and magnified through exalted flesh. That's what Christ meant when He said He's going to prepare a place. Not that He's going to get to heaven and take out His heavenly toolkit and start constructing houses and other things. What He means by it is that He's going to change the form of heaven to bear His nature, His imprint. The glory will be uh, centered around His own person. And that's exactly what John sees in the book of Revelation. He gets taken up into this same heaven that the Old Testament prophets saw. But when he sees a vision of heaven, the first thing he encounters is not the bright lights and the angels and the empty throne. The first thing he sees and hears is the exalted Christ. Heaven is now Christ's heaven. It's built upon Him. That's what its substance is made of. And it is through the holy things of the new covenant that this form of heavenly glory, this eschatological state of Christ-centeredness is brought near to us. That's why Paul says that the Lord's Supper is a participation right now in the body of the Lord Jesus. Through the Spirit, the glorified Christ draws near to us and the heavenly life that He has won is applied to us. That's why, again, the Hebrews tells us that the holy things are the means by which we taste of the power's of the age to come. The state of heaven has been uh, advanced and inaugurated by the exalted Christ, and it is that which is brought near to us. And that is why holy things are to be fearful as we draw near to them. That is why they must be distinguished from the common things in our lives, whereby the heavenly glory of Christ is not brought to us. Your common evening bread and drink do not bring this glory to you, but the Lord's Supper does. It is set apart as holy. Now as we come to an end here, the application. There could be a lot of applications to this, but I'm just going to give two. The first and most obvious application is this. You need to convince yourself of the weightiness of the holy things that God draws near to you through. You must refuse to be like the Israelites 
who consistently despised the opportunity to have God bringing His heavenly glory near to them. Fix in your minds the clear picture of God's displeasure that He paints over and over again in the Old Testament as people profane His holy things. Death and destruction. And then in light of that picture, realize that when you draw near to the holy things of the new covenant, you are drawing near to something far more dangerous than they did. The writer of Hebrews says this, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? Why is that? Why is it that He can say how much more punishment do you think is to be deserved? Because the author recognizes exactly what we just said. That the glory which draws near to us in the new covenant is of a far greater manifestation than the glory that was profaned by the Israelites under the old covenant. For that was not the glory of God exalted and reflected in an accomplished God-man. And the saints of the Old Testament sometimes, you know, they got to see the the bright cloud of, of glory and light and fire coming to rest on various objects. You have the burning bush and the tabernacle and the ark and several other things. They got to see that. But when we come near to the Lord's table, we don't see something like that. It's not like there's a visible thing from heaven that comes and descends upon the elements as they're being distributed around. And so what happens is as carnal men, we cannot help but think that the glory that we approach unto is lesser than if we had gotten to be in the Exodus and seen the cloud and the angel and seen the, the, the mountain shake and God manifest His glory because we're carnal. We want to see. But the teaching of the New Testament is that the glory of heaven that we approach unto in these holy ordinances is of an infinitely and far surpassing weight than that experienced by Moses or any Israelite in the Old Testament. Jesus brings to us through His holy things eschatological, heavenly realities that fundamentally boil down to His own person. He draws near. And so when you approach unto the Lord's table or baptism or corporate worship or the Word of God generally in a casual or a flippant manner, it is as if you were given the opportunity to actually walk into heaven's throne room itself and you spat upon the face of the exalted Christ. What an awful thought. And I hope that that repulses you just to even think about something. And yet that is what we do because it's that reality that is brought near to us. It's no different in substance. Now there's all the comfort in the world in knowing that we have access to draw nigh unto the Father through Christ. But it's that immediacy of access that also carries with it a much greater responsibility on our part when we deal with God's holy things. Now that was a general exhortation to our sort of attitude and our awareness and our demeanor of holy things. But now to close, I want to just take one aspect of the holy things that we encounter weekly and offer a specific application, and that is to uh, corporate prayer. Now, some may ask, is corporate prayer a holy thing? I mean, it, it's not physical, like the ark or the tabernacle or, the, or even the waters of baptism or the Lord's Supper. It's, it's not a physical but remember, our definition of holy things was not just to the physical, but also institutions. For example, the Sabbath institution. The Sabbath is not a physical thing, but it is an institution, and therefore it is called a holy day. It is among God's holy things. And while there's much debate about whether prayer is, in the technical sense of the term, a means of grace, 
Corporate prayer is undisputedly one of the ways by which the truths of God are spread abroad throughout the congregation and by which God makes Himself known to His people. As we hear our brothers pray in a way that is theologically rich and edifying, we hear truths from the Word of God and they're brought to our souls. And even if they're not reciting some aspect of theology in their prayer, just seeing or hearing a man dependent upon God teaches us something about ourselves. Christ draws near and He ministers to His people in corporate prayer. That's why He prescribed it. Now, several months ago when I was outlining this sermon, I settled on corporate prayer as one of the applications. But then just a few weeks back, Paul, in one of the evening uh, uh, services, took to corporate prayer as, as his application. And so I've sort of modified this. I'm, I'm not going to repeat what he said. But instead, in light of the application that we heard just several weeks ago, and in light of today's text about reverence for the holy things of God, I want to ask us this question. How are we doing? You may recall that the week after Paul gave an exhortation, an application to corporate prayer for the men to step up and pray, there was a, a noticeable uptick in participation for about two to three weeks. And that's not surprising. But it also doesn't really tell us if there's been a true and heartfelt increase in our reverence for holy things. All it tells us is that we can squirm when the pressure is applied, like a dog or something. And if that's the case, then we're no different in Israel. Because what do we do? We look back in the Old Testament and we bemoan all the time how when the external pressures come, that's when Israel cries out. That's when you see the action from Israel. But then what happens? A little time passes, the moment is gone, and then they slip right back into their old ways. And if all we're going to do when met with an exhortation to obedience is to do better externally for a couple of weeks until the moment is passed, then we're no different than the Israelites were. That's not reverence for holy things. And I still have to say that some of you men, I have never to this day, not one time that I can recall, heard you actually obey the command to offer prayer in the midst of the assembly. I don't recall God offering any exemptions to anybody because you don't feel like it or are embarrassed. When you read the story of God killing Uzzah for not obeying his directives and handling the ark, do you think, do you get angry at God? Do you, do you find fault with God? Of course not. You think... Why would they not just do what God had said? It's quite simple. We, we were like, if they just obey, it will go well with them. And then yet we turn around and the commands that we're given, very often we feel the liberty to exempt ourselves from such commands. And this is not just exclusive to men. Ladies, is corporate prayer a time of checkout for you? Do you offer prayer on your own? Are you listening to the prayers of the men, giving your amen and allowing yourself to be edified? The real test of whether we have increased our reverence for holy things is not going to be found in whether there's an uptick in attendance to and participation in prayer today. It's going to be six months from now when the moment has passed and reverence for God is going to be seen to be true or false. You see, anybody can submit themselves to an application for a couple of weeks. That's not the test of an application. Test of an application is whether the reverence stays for the long haul. And so the question for us will be, will we reverence the things of the Lord? Are we going to approach them with a seriousness and a sobriety that is due to them? Do we actually think that they are the means by which the exalted Christ has promised to draw near? Or are they a time of checkout? Are they a time of thinking about other things? If I mean, you all know that if your eyes could see the realities of the heavenly glory being brought near in those things, your, your mind wouldn't deviate for a moment. 
But if that's all we've got is we need some physical stimulus to get us going, then we're no different from the carnal men around us. We've got to be able to, through faith, approach unto the holy things, looking to their substance, looking to the man who is seated upon the throne, and then letting that fuel our love and reverence for God. This doesn't just apply to corporate prayer. This applies to any ordinance of public worship that we come near to. God's put them there for a reason. He draws near to us. Let's thank Him by actively reverencing and participating in those things. That's what they're there for. Let's ask that God would give us that fear and reverence of Him. Let's go to Him now in prayer.